0: Well, I would like to blame Steve Smallman for taking the easy passages and giving me the hard ones. (laughs) But I plan the sermon series. (laughs) So there's no one to blame but myself. Uh, I'd like to pray before we begin again, if you don't mind. Lord, I thank you for filling us with your spirit. I thank you that we who believe in the name of your son, Jesus, have been risen with him. I thank you that you are present with your people, speaking to them on every issue, on life and on death and on sex and on marriage and on our money and on our time and on our jobs and in every way. Would you give us strength to hear today what you have to say to us about sex. Would you fill me with humility and a spirit of understanding? And would you fill everyone everyone here with that same eagerness to learn from you? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I've spent a good bit of time thinking about sex this week. As we've been working through this passage, I know that all of you spend a lot of time thinking about sex yourselves. And uh, the more I have thought about it, the more I've become convinced that there's actually a significant paradox at work when it comes to talking about sex in the church. Okay, so on the one hand, there's a whole group of people who would say, hey, we need to talk about sex more. And they would actually accuse the church of being silent on issues that people in our culture desperately need to hear. And their argument goes something like this. See if you can identify with this. We live in a sex-saturated, sex-obsessed society. You can't even open your door or turn on the TV or look on the Internet without seeing images of sex, without seeing um, scantily clad models and actresses and We're facing these things all the time. And then this this group would also sort of point to all the statistics and kind of the effects of that, okay? So we're getting this media blitz. We're getting um, bombarded with images of sex and sexuality. And what happens, they would say, is there's there's this rise in, like, promiscuous sex and people having sex outside of marriage. And there's a rise in um, teenagers looking at pornography. And if you go back and look at these statistics, you can become quite depressed, Um, I was looking, even just yesterday, something like 93% of 18-year-olds surveyed, and this was like seven years ago, over the course of a two-year period, um, had looked at internet pornography of all types. I mean, they just had the lists of all types, and something like 60 or 70% of women 18 years old. Um, So it's all around us. It's everywhere. And these guys would say, the problem is the church remains silent. So people listening even to this sermon can access some of the most lurid material instantly on the Internet, some of the most lurid things imaginable, but you can't even find a pastor who will say the word orgasm in a sermon. And they would say, listen, we're, we're denying the facts. We're prudish Victorians. We are ignoring the world around us, and we're really in denial. And so their conclusion is this. Let's talk about it more. Let's fight against it head first. Let's take on the issue. Let's create groups of people who will sit around and talk about it. Let's equip people to deal with it. You may have made some of those similar arguments. Have you even talked with folks in the congregation who would? Okay, here's the paradox, though. On the other hand, I think there's a whole group within the church that thinks we need to talk about sex less. And maybe this one resonates with you. They would accuse the church of actually being reactionary. So their argument goes something like this. Once again, we live in a sex-saturated, sex-obsessed society. So both groups kind of agree with that. But they say, not only do I see these media images, but like everybody around me is defining themselves by who they're having sex with, how much sex they're having, what type of sex they're having. I can't get away from it. Even when I go to the church... The church simply responds. So they kind of think that, listen, the world has set the agenda. Sex is the most important thing you can think about. Become obsessed with it. Become infatuated with it. Do it all the time with whoever you want to. And then the church responds by, by, with, with this emphasis on their version of sex as the primary thing that humans can, can achieve, married sex. And I have to elaborate that just a little bit because what I'm thinking about here is if some of you probably grew up in the church and you went to youth groups where you got like kicked in the face by guys who were saying, did you, can, can someone nod so that I know (laughs) that I know this is true, who were saying, okay, good. I see a few people nodding. And these guys would get up and they would say, don't have sex. You know, they're like yelling at you. And I remember this one guy, I actually remember a guy and I was talking to somebody else this week who, who probably heard the same guy who was like. If you have sex now, that's like eating a cheeseburger at McDonald's when if you wait until you're married, that's a steak dinner. Did you hear that guy? <laughs> have you heard that guy? That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, it's, here's why. Let me. Dwayne, choose words carefully today, of all days here's why it's ridiculous because having sex feels good, whether you're married or not. So you're lying to someone. Okay. Secondly, you've just cheapened the thing to, to food and consumption. Hey, even when you're married, the pinnacle of it is your wife is a steak dinner. That's, that's, that's funny because it's degrading. It's disgusting. It should send kind of a shock or a jitter up your spine. Um, And I'm thinking also of another group, which is um, singles primarily. And I think sometimes the church has done a real disservice. So again, I'm still in this second argument, this group that's kind of like, can we please not talk about sex anymore? Part of it is, I just don't want to hear that guy anymore. I don't want to hear that message anymore. But also, I think even in kind of more mature situations and more mature congregations, one of the things that happens is um, we sort of so emphasize marriage that I think we probably... um, marginalized single people. And I don't think that's true at Liberty. We're filled with a lot of single folks and single folks in leadership and single folks doing all kinds of stuff. But at a lot of churches or maybe churches that you've been in the past, sometimes singles may feel like there's another marriage book, another marriage seminar, another marriage lecture, another marriage talk. And then all your married friends are saying, Hey, because you're single, you're free this weekend to help me move in. (laughs) That's like what you're relegated to. And if you want a great look at this, um, there's a book by Lauren Winter called Real Sex, and she tries to sort of dispel some of the myths that you hear about, about it. And one of her big emphasis is that, that singles um, have tended to be marginalized and maybe thinking, hey, please stop talking about sex. Um, if I can add a third, even a third sort of subpoint to this, I think it also um, explains our stilted response to the homosexual community. So the homosexual community is a community that defines itself by who people have sex with, and then we respond again with our own brand of, no, this is what sex should be, this is what married sex looks like, this is with an obsession, with sometimes a dogmatic obsession. Sex over here, sex over here. And so some people might say, or come to the conclusion, hey, let's talk about sex less. So you've got one group that says, let's talk about it more. You've got one group that says, let's talk about it less. What are we to do? (laughs) Read Paul. (laughs) That's probably the best thing. Turn Turn to scripture. Because, see, the issue is not, should we talk about sex more or should we talk about sex less? Okay, that's kind of misleading to put it in that way. That's sort of like Republicans and Democrats who are always going around saying, more government, less government. More government, less government, but nobody ever really defines what government is for. Have you ever noticed that, especially on the sound bites? Like, if you could just say what the government is for, then yes, let's please have more of that, and if you could say what the government shouldn't be doing, then let's have less of that, but just saying more, just saying less, isn't going to solve the problem, and I am sure that um, we have certainly, as a church, talked about sex when we should have shut up, and we have not talked about it when we should have been vocal the most. And so there's definitely a problem. But I think the root of that is because we lack a Christ-centered way to think about sex and to think about our bodies. We lack a Christ-centered approach to thinking about sex and to thinking about our bodies. And I love, I am falling in love with Paul in 1 Corinthians. (laughs) Like every time I read Paul, I'm just like, no, I can't believe he did that. That's amazing, because watch what Paul does. He is, he's amazing. (laughs) He doesn't respond to sexual immorality with sexual morality, or sexual rules, or sexual laws, no matter what any critical scholar will accuse Paul of doing. He is not a moralist. Hang on. He doesn't define sex... With sexual categories, he responds to sexual immorality the way he responds to everything else by talking about the power of God the Father, by talking about the word, uh, the, the work of the word, his son, Jesus Christ. And by talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he says, because the Christian belongs to Christ, because the Christian has been created, and because the Christian has been redeemed in Christ, then you should glorify God with your body and flee sexual immorality. But all of those decisions, all of those behaviors, all of those actions have to be rooted in a new identity that comes in Jesus, through his cross, and through his resurrection. What Paul's saying in chapter 6 is no different than what he said in, verse, in chapter 1. It's no different than what he said in chapter 2. It's no different than what he said in chapter 3. He's just taking that gospel truth, and he's working it out through every moral issue that he can think of. We talked about incest. He talks about uh, suing other people. He talks here about sexual immorality more broadly. What he's inviting us to do is he's inviting us to renew the way that we think about sex by using redemptive categories instead of using sociological categories and instead of using behavioral categories. Okay, so I want to look at three. I may only have time to do two, but we're going to start with the first one. The first redemptive category is this. It's creation, and I want you to look at verses 12 through 13 again. Because you belong to Christ, Paul is inviting you to see your body as created and sex as good. Okay. Those who belong to Christ know that the body is important because humans were created in the image of God. And that is like the canvas upon which he is painting everything else that he's going to paint. It's sort of the backdrop from which he's going to say everything else that he's going to say. The more I looked at this passage this week, the more I felt like he had creation um, on his mind as he's working through. And because humans were created in the image of God, the function of your body cannot be limited to natural desires. It cannot be limited to urges or to appetites. Look at verse 13. Paul says, It is for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord. It has a purpose because God created the body for more than sex. And He certainly created it for more than sexual immorality, Paul is saying. He created it to reflect His glory. Think of this, okay, think of what's meant when we say you were created, every one of you in this room, the first fact that you should understand about yourself is that you were created in the image of God, you were created with a body that was good, and what was the body for? Created in God's image means that you were created with dignity, you were created with worth. You're created with value. You're created with importance. He has made you like him to represent him on earth, to show others about him, to share who he is, so that each time you meet another person, you find something else about what God is like and who he is. It also means that you have humility because you're, you're his servant. You are designed to give him worship, to bring him glory, and to use your body To know him, to love him, to trust him, to follow him, to care for his creation. And sex and sexuality are just one good part of that and what that looks like and what it means. And that lies underneath the surface of everything that Paul says in these first two verses. Um, I want to read you a quote by Lauren Winter from that book, Real Sex, uh, that I think gets at the heart of this. And then I want to talk specifically about what the Corinthians were doing and what they were thinking. Um, Lauren Winter writes this. She says, Uh, basically bodies are good bodies are not simply pieces of furniture to decorate or display they are not trappings about which we have conflicted feelings they're not body images we need to revamp or retool they are not objects to be dieted away made to conform to popular standards or made to perform unthinkable athletic feats with the help of drugs they are neither tools for scoring points nor burdens to overcome they're simply good They're good. And the problem with the guy who's saying, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, and this is one of the points Lauren Winter makes in her book, is that we spend, like, we we take people and for 20 years, we say, don't have sex, which gets in their minds that sex is bad. And then when they're 20 or 21, we say, okay, go get married and have sex and be functional and healthy and a normal, productive human being. it's like, what? (laughs) I can't make that transition so easily. It's difficult. There's too much guilt. There's too much pain. There's too much shame. And the church has only made that worse. Okay. Let's look at the Corinthians specifically. What were they doing? Uh, Look back at verse 12 and 13. They were not only engaged in sexual immorality. In this case, the very specific thing that they were doing is visiting prostitutes. And the kind of prostitutes it was, uh, there's all sorts of speculation. We don't need to get into it. Um, I sort of think that they were the types of secular prostitutes that were present at banquets and at feasts. So young men, when they came of age, would go attend these sort of luxurious banquets and feasts. And then they would have prostitutes waiting around afterwards. The point is that the Corinthians, just like like they were doing last week, if you're here with us, just like they were um, sort of proud of their behavior, once again, we find them defending these actions with sort of um, common slogans and catchphrases. They say, all things are lawful for me, and the translators help you know that by putting the quotations in there. Paul is quoting something that these guys have said, and that essentially means I'm free to do anything I want to do. Okay. Sounds like 21st century American philosophy right there. Don't tell me what to do. I'm free to do anything I want to do. And they also say this, look down, um, food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. And that's basically a euphemistic way for saying, hey, sex is for the body, the body's for sex, it's all natural, it's all normal, that's what it's made for, don't worry about what you do there because it's not going to affect your soul anyway. So we have to kind of get into the thinking of the Corinthians, and remember they're rooted in Greek philosophy, they're rooted in um, Platonism or some form of it, which says, okay, the soul is immortal, and it's kind of trapped in the prison house of the body, the body is in some senses inferior to the soul, and what we're trying to do is, we're trying to kind of escape the body and achieve some sort of higher spiritual existence. And some of them took that to mean that if the body is going to be destroyed, and if the body doesn't matter, then what I do with my body doesn't matter so much. It only, what, the only thing that matters is what happens in the end to my soul. So they thought, in a sense, that their body doesn't have a future um in that way what i would do um just as a side note is i do believe that in verse 13 where it says food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food i would not put the quotation marks there i would basically say and god will destroy both one and the other and then put the quotation marks after that no quotation marks in the original greek so the guys who are translating are kind of putting it in where they think that it belongs i think that all of that second part is a portion of what the corinthians are saying Okay but look look at keep looking at 12 and 13 Paul is rejecting their philosophy he's resisting their conventional wisdom he says he says two things to them Hey just because it's possible Doesn't mean it's helpful. Doesn't mean it's beneficial. Doesn't mean it's good for anyone else. Doesn't mean it's good for strengthening the community. And secondly, I will not be enslaved by anything. And I don't think that Paul is dealing simply with common sense. I don't think he's fighting philosophy with philosophy. I think what he's doing is thinking about creation. You see, the person that's created in the image of God is designed to live in a harmonious community with other image bearers. And that means they shouldn't control others or be controlled by them. We're not meant to enslave others or to be enslaved by them. We're not meant to manipulate others or to be manipulated by them. And isn't that lack of dignity at the root of all sorts of sexual sins? Hang with me for a minute. Isn't that the root of all sorts of sexual sins? Either the attempt to control someone or to be controlled by someone else. Okay? If you're at home looking at pornography, what you're doing is you are objectifying another person that was created in the image of God. You're objectifying someone. Instead of allowing that person to be the subject, God's royal subject, created to glorify him, you're objectifying them, treating them as an object. Okay, So in other words, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm the king. Anytime we lust, we turn our desires into lust, think of how often those lustful thoughts are centered around... You as the king and other people doing every single thing you would like to have them do to you. Isn't that what a fantasy is about? Isn't that what pornography is about? It's about seeing other people enact every desire that you would have. And what you're doing is you're attempting to control. You're attempting to control them but they have been created in the image of God. And what is... um, Promiscuity. What is having sex with a number of other, a lot of other people, except for an attempt to conquer, an attempt to control, an attempt to have other people? Yet the ironic thing is, look at how running from one lover to the next lover actually turns in upon yourself and controls you, how it enslaves you, how it functions against you, how those desires work against you. Do you see what's happening here? Even in marriage, you can use and manipulate and abuse your spouse in a way that makes her or him serve you. But that's not what they were created for. That's not what they were meant to do. You were not designed to enslave others or to be enslaved by them. And that's why Paul says flee. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. And again, I love Paul because he doesn't just say something negative. He doesn't just say, run away. Kind of like the guys in Monty Python, (laughs) if you remember in the Holy Grail. Run away. And they're all kind of... He doesn't just say that. He also says the positive spin on it, which is, you know, avoid the negative, but do something that's positive. Glorify God in your body. And that means stop trying to possess other people. Stop allowing them to possess you. And that begins by seeing your body as good. It begins as seeing other people as created in God's image. And in a sense, what this does is put sex in its place. It doesn't allow it to kind of grow in such a way that we become obsessed or we become infatuated. Instead, we question our own desires rather than um, claiming freedom. I can do whatever I want to do. I can do whatever I want to do. I can do whatever I want to do. Okay, good. That's point one. Your body is good. Sex is part of your body, so sex is good. Created in that way. But, of course, we fall in. Of course, um, we don't see, we, we see sinful nature nowhere more clearly than we see it in the sexual arena. It's a place where we have seen all sorts of brokenness, all sorts of pain, all sorts of suffering. And Paul, what he does next in verses 14 through 18, 14 through 17, is actually fascinating. He says, because you belong to Christ, you need to see your body not only as created, but also as renewed. You need to see your bodies not only only as created, but also as redeemed and see sex as redeemed. See, the defining fact that controls all that Paul has to say about this topic is that you have been raised with Christ. You have been united to Christ. You have been given the spirit of the living God if you have faith in Jesus and turn yourself over to him and trust in him. Look at verse 14. God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. Think about it. If you saw that, if I quoted you that verse out of context, you have no idea that it has anything to do with a passage on sex. Okay? You would would have no idea if it was in isolation or out of context, but for Paul, it's the central concern when he's dealing with issues of the body. And notice, the other thing that he does, which is fascinating, is that Paul almost never separates Jesus' resurrection from the resurrection of the believers. So he wants to make a point about Jesus' body that's then going to tell you a way to think about your body, and we have to get our mind around what Paul is saying. Here's what he's saying. Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. I want to stop and just think about that for a minute. Jesus is risen from the dead. That's a historical fact. That's a fact that you should use to interpret every other historical fact, every other action, every other decision that you could make. Because Jesus was risen in his body. There is a hope for you and a hope for your future and a hope for this failing, decrepit, painful sin-laden body. Jesus entered into death and came back out from it again. Jesus is risen and reigning and ruling. And that means that your bodies too can be renewed. See what Paul's doing He's saying, look, your bodies were created for a purpose to bring dignity and honor and glory to God. Your bodies also have a future. They will be raised. And that means that what you do now in the body actually matters. As a a matter of fact, in some senses, it's of urgent concern. See, if I can make a brief aside, I think sometimes we actually do think like the Greeks. We sort of think um, because of bad greeting cards and because of weird movies that we've seen that all that eternity has to offer us is like for us to be disembodied spirits sort of floating around somewhere. Have you ever have you seen some of those movies or some of those greeting cards? Like as if heaven and all it has to, to offer us is harp playing <laughs> and wings and looking like angels and floating out there. But what he's offering is a renewed body. What he's offering is putting all things to right. What he's offering is not disembodied spirits. But it means a new body that will be restored and will live for him for, forever. And that means eating and sleeping and reading and running and dancing and swimming and worshiping and all of the things that come along with that. You see, I think that... Um, On the other hand, we we sort of have maybe the opposite problem that the Corinthians have. I think sometimes we think that the body is all that there is. Maybe if they thought that the spirit was the only thing that there was and the body didn't matter, it was just going to be destroyed, I think sometimes we think that everything is natural, everything is physical, everything is simply mechanical. And, you know, if you follow anything like um, some of the latest developments in cognitive neuroscience, many of you are much smarter than me and know a lot more about this than I do, but one of the latest things to do is to sort of say that even your desires, even your affections are controlled simply by natural processes in your brain and by chemical imbalances and all of those sort of things. But if that's true, you have no creator guiding you. You have no future for your bodies. And then everything becomes driven by the moment. Everything becomes driven by the urge. Everything becomes driven by what's happening now. But Paul says, no, you will be raised. You have been created. You will be raised. You will be redeemed. And for that reason, you can't unite yourself... With a prostitute. He says, Listen, if you're going to be raised with Christ, you have been united with him. That means in some senses your spirits can't be raised any more than they are now. And don't take that thing and bring it down to a degrading level. Don't take what you were intended for, which is union with Christ and relationship with Christ, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and bring it into union with a prostitute what he's implying is that sex produces some sort of real union and therefore has enormous implications. And that's why he says, don't sin against your own body. Don't sin against your own body, but flee sexual immorality and glorify God in your, in your body. And I, I think what he's getting at is that the heart is very close to sex. It's easy to imagine um, stealing from someone without loving them or without getting enmeshed. It's easy to think of other sins that we could do. But it's hard to think of some sort of sexual union or sexual sin or sexual thing that's going on there without that sort of being enmeshed and being drawn and being intertwined and being being a part of one because it engages so much of your body and so much of your psychology and so much of your energy. But Christ has designed you to be one with him and to be united with him. We need really to stop treating our bodies as if they're our possession, as if they're something that we own and do whatever we want with. Instead, we need to see them in submission to him. You belong to Christ. You were bought with a price. You are not your own, he says. Uh, let me quickly just run through the third point um, as we're running out of time. Not only, look at verses 18 through 20. So not only should we think about the body as created, not only should we think about the body as risen and renewed, we should also think about sex as redeemed. And I think this is important. I think this is important because what Paul says in verse Nineteen is. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? And I think one of the things that we often think is that that means that if um, we shouldn't sort of contaminate contaminate our body because we have the spirit within us. But there's also an element that, that is present, which is if you have the spirit, then you have been given power to fight against sin and to flee against sin and to flee against the sexual sins that we're dealing with. And you have the power to glorify him in your in your bodies but here's what i think the problem is sometimes in our fleeing we become equally sex obsessed sometimes in our glorifying we become equally um sex obsessed and what i mean is this if you try to stop sinning one of the things that happens is oftentimes you you think about the sin this is kind of back to where we were last week you think about the sin so much that you're not worshiping you're 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 becoming so obsessed and so focused on it that you're bound to fall into it again and again and again and again. Uh, But Christ is calling you to focus not only on your behavior, but on the heart, and on the one who changes the heart, and on the spirit which is within you. And that spirit is inviting you to flee, not only by fighting directly against the sin, but also allowing him to change change the heart, which calls you to focus not on the sin, but on the cross. Not on the sin, but on the resurrection power. Not on the sin, but on the fact that you have been raised with him. Christ is busy working to remove shame, and he's busy working to remove guilt. He's busy working to remove, remove fear. And in one sense, this is all equivalent to what Jesus says in Luke 20, which is, um, there's more to life than sex. There's more to life than sex. So in a way, I entitled the sermon more or less about sex. Uh, If you take nothing else away, basically what I want you to see is that um, how do we navigate that that thing that we were asking about? How do we navigate? Should we talk more about it? Should we talk less about it? Um, We navigate it by putting it in its proper place and putting it in its proper context in those categories of creation and, and union with Christ and redemption so if you're struggling with some sexual sin, I would actually encourage you to talk about it more. That's kind of the application from last week. Open up, find somebody to talk about, find somebody to, um, to work through it with. And if you're struggling with sexual sin, talk less about the sin so much. Sometimes instead of getting bogged down, there's kind of life past accountability is what I'm saying here. And focus more on pointing each other to Jesus, pointing each other to his resurrection power, pointing each other to the Spirit and what the Spirit is doing within you. Um, There is more to life than sex. All right, let's pray. Lord, I pray that um, you would help us to see that you, are, you, are, you, have more, you have power over the things that plague and burden us. Help us to see that you have created us with dignity. And help us to see uh, that we can address every issue because of what you have done for us in Christ. And I pray that we would find help and healing and hope in the midst of any sort of struggle or difficulty or pain that we're facing. And I pray that we would run away from sexual immorality and run towards glorifying you, and that we'd use even the time of communion today to help us to do that. I pray that you would begin conversations among people who need to have conversations. And for those of us who talk about sex in some skewed ways and and strange ways, would you correct us, and would you renew us, and would you help us And would you heal us? And I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.